Chapter 9. God's Plagues. Sermon 157, preached Wednesday, the 18th of March, 1556, on Deuteronomy 28, verses 25 through 29. The Lord shall cause you to be smitten down before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, and you shall flee before them seven ways, and you shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And your carcass shall be food for all birds of the heavens and for the beasts of the earth, and no man shall frighten them away. The Lord shall smite you with the boils of Egypt and with the hemorrhoids and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord shall smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart, and you shall be groping about at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, with none to save you. If we were threatened by a mortal man in the way that God threatens us in his law, surely we would be moved to fear, even if such a man had no great power over us. From this we see our ungodliness, so much so that even though we try to hide it, yet it betrays itself in that we attribute more power to mortal creatures than we do to the living God. By these words, God intends to test the honor and obedience that we bear Him in this way, that He assures us of His love, and we should rest everything holy thereon and keep ourselves contented therewith. And likewise, on the other side, when He gives us any certain token of His anger, we should quake at it. Let us take good heed, therefore, of what is here mentioned, namely, that we not be so blockish as to scorn God's wrath. But let us return to what has been said already, which is that His hand must be against us if we do not live according to His law. It is certain that men will naturally give liberty to their lusts, to do whatsoever God has forbidden them. They will not admit to it, but their actions show it to be so. And when we, on our part, have defied him and assaulted him, is this not a good reason for him to arm himself against us? It is true that as long as we live in this present world, the infirmity of our flesh is such that we are not able in all respects to satisfy the law of God. Nevertheless, when men pass their bounds so far that good and evil is all the same to them, and when they do not strive at all against their lusts, they show themselves open enemies of God, and to that end also is Moses speaking. Even though we do our utmost to resist evil, and do it in the fear of God that restrains us, yet we do not cease to deserve to be chastised by him. We see thus that the faithful are not exempt from many afflictions, and that God acts to reclaim them much more than he does the despisers of his majesty. For since they are his children, so he has the greater care for them, and therefore he chastises them the more earnestly. Howbeit, Moses in this place does not speak of them, but of such as harden themselves in stubbornness, flinging out of course in such a way that they make no conscience about evil doing. They never think that there is a judge in heaven until he makes them feel his hand. And therefore, Moses does not say, God shall chastise you as a father does his children, but 
God shall strike you fiercely, and you shall feel his hand so roughly and strongly that you shall not be able to abide it, and that not for one day, but continually, until you are consumed and perish. Seeing then that we hear such threats, let us understand that they are prepared for such as are hardened in evil, and are not restrained by any fear that might make them resist when they feel temptation within themselves. Rather, they go on, taking the bridle in their teeth and mocking God. And what will follow from that? Over and besides the things we have seen before, Moses adds that God shall smite such despisers with various plagues. First, he shall send them enemies, and give them power to destroy and to consume them, insomuch that they shall persecute them even in their dead carcasses, so that when they are overthrown, he shall not do them the honor of permitting them to be buried, but shall leave them as food for the crows and for the beasts of the earth. And moreover, he has various other means of plaguing them in their bodies, by sending them various diseases, such as cankers and other boils and scabs, whereby they shall be brought to such a pass that they no longer have any understanding, but are utterly out of their minds, so that they grope at noonday as the blind do in the dark. And surely the sorest point of God's vengeance is when men are so overthrown that they have no more heart to return to Him, nor are they able to recover themselves to acknowledge their faults and to perceive that when the hand of God destroys them there is no help unless they flee to Him for mercy. Rather, they remain bewildered as men beside themselves. By this, God shows Himself to be their mortal enemy. Wars Now concerning what Moses says here about enemies, we see again how God holds the hearts of men in His hands, so that if we are in peace, and suddenly war is made against us, and we did not know it was coming, it is because God is angry at us, as I have shown before. Because we have despised Him, He must also war against us. He has soldiers enough, as soon as He makes any sign, as Isaiah 5.26 shows. All the earth is moved, even though only a little while before no man thought to have stirred himself up. Let us therefore understand that when wars occur in the world, God shows tokens of His wrath. It is certain, as we have already noted, that even though we serve God faithfully and stand in His protection, yet we shall not cease to have enemies, for it is His will to exercise us by that means. Such is the present state of the Church, and such it has always been. But this good comes from it, that God will maintain us against our enemies. When they have devised evil against us, yet they will not bring their purpose to pass. They will be disappointed. And though they are as fierce as lions, and full of desperate rage, yet will God tame them at the last. And though they continue in their purpose to devour us, yet they will not have the power to do it, as has been said before in Deuteronomy 28.7. If they come against us one way, they will flee seven ways. But now it is said contrarywise, that even though we are more powerful than our enemies, and attack them in good order so that the victory may seem to be already gained on our side, as we see how the wicked are inflamed with pride and presumption, yet 
when we think ourselves to have attained the goal, God will touch us with such a fear that we shall not know which way to run fast enough, but every one of us will be at his wit's end. Let us understand from this that when God stirs up wars to chastise us, though we are fully equipped and have all the means possible for fighting, yet we must perish if God is against us. For victory is not obtained by the force and valor of men, but by the Lord of hosts. And there is no other help for us but to be at peace with God, that he may choose to guard us under his wings, according to his use of the same similitude, that he will play the part of a hen towards her chickens. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. For then we shall be safe, though all the world conspire for our destruction. And even though our enemies be exceedingly mighty and strong, and fully determined in their malice to destroy us utterly, yet is it sufficient that God protects us, and that even though we have no succor from men, yet we are sufficiently fortified by His power alone. But if we proceed to offend Him, and He sees that after He has spared us and recovered us to Himself, we depart and become His adversaries and continue in our rebellion. Then, after He has put up with us long enough, He must perforce bring us to this point of being consumed by the hands of our enemies. And although others seem as wicked as we are, and it seems that God is prospering them no more than He is us, let that not deceive us. For God will sometimes give victory to the wicked, which are no better than we are, but even worse. Yet He will not refuse to destroy us at their hands, though their turn will come as well. Meanwhile, we must not think that this threat is uttered in vain. Therefore, let us not compare ourselves with others, saying, Well, aren't they just as bad offenders as we are? And doesn't God have just as good reason to punish them? Yes, He does. But He knows the proper time and season, and He can use them as seems good to Himself. But let us prepare ourselves to abide His blows if we stop up our ears against His threats and sleep when he would awaken us. For if we give no heed to his threats, we must feel by experience that he who pronounces them has power to put them into execution, and that he does not speak, as they say, just to frighten little children. It is certain that God will threaten often before he finally comes to execute judgment. Let us therefore consider his long patience in tarrying for us. For if we abuse the same, it will result in nothing other than a heaping up and doubling of God's wrath toward us, so much so that it would have been better for us if he had rooted us out the first day than to have borne with us so long. Let scoffers say that respite is worth gold. There is no respite that we would not redeem with a hundred deaths were it but possible, when we have been so stubborn against our God and so disobedient to his word that we have made into a laughing matter his giving us some token of his anger. Let us therefore consider that as long as God is sparing us, he is giving us leisure to return to him, and that if our enemies have left us alone, it shows his favor to us that we might act to prevent his wrath. But if we will neither hear him when he speaks nor receive his warnings, then we will need to give ear to these his threats here set forth, and it becomes necessary for him to send us off to another school. It is of the wonderful goodness of our God that when we have thus provoked him, as we see we do, 
yet he forbears us and does all to recover us to himself, not by forcing us with many strokes, but by attracting us after a loving fashion, being ready to receive us to his mercy, not standing as a judge to vex and to condemn us. But what, when we have shown contempt for all this, it must come to pass in the end, as I have said before, that our Lord will stir up against us other masters, so that the wicked will rise up against us and seek to make a slaughter of us by butchering and murdering us, being in very deed the executors of God's vengeance, of which we were warned long beforehand, though we chose to laugh at it, continuing in our sins and wickedness. That is why I said that as long as God speaks to us, and we condemn ourselves and acknowledge our sins, and seek atonement with our God that we may live in peace in this world, then even if it is God's will that we should have enemies and be kept occupied with wars, yet notwithstanding, he holds us still in his keeping, and we are maintained and defended by his power and goodness. The Privilege of Burial Now let us turn to the next verse, verse 26, where Moses says, that their dead carcasses shall be food for all birds of the heavens and for the beasts of the earth, and no man shall frighten them away. This seems an empty threat, for what difference does it make whether or not a man is buried when he is dead? What is he the better or worse for it? It seems then, at first glance, that this threat should not be highly regarded. But God intended to show that he will make his wrath felt even in the bodies of those that are dead. And indeed, Burial is a privilege that God has given to mankind as a warrant of the resurrection. Let us not think that burying the dead proceeds from a foolish superstition, or that men devised it themselves. It is true that the heathen have used it, and it will be a witness against them at the last day, when they will be convicted by their employment of that ceremony, which should have taught them to look for the last resurrection. Their failure to consider it is so inexcusable. For our burial ought to be for us an impressive mirror or portrait, to show us that we are not created to decline into corruption, as if there were not another life, and as if we should not be restored into a new state. And it serves always for a larger declaration, which is that mankind perishes but for a time, and that their bodies will be renewed. Now, since burial is a memorial of the resurrection, as I said before, Therefore, it is given to men as a privilege to be buried. In this respect, there is an honest virtue in it, so that we who remain are taught, as it were, by eyesight, to look continually for a second life. For the dead man also bears a certain mark in his body, that he is, as it were, laid up in safe keeping until the day comes that God will raise the dead again. Now, on the other hand, when it is said that men shall not be buried, but that they shall be eaten by beasts and fowls, it is as much as if God meant to deprive them of the common benefit that he had granted to all mankind, and as if he had showed openly that both in life and in death they were a curse to him. And that is why it is said, You shall be buried with the burial of an ass in Jeremiah 22.19. This was spoken by the prophet to a king, even the king of Judah. And because he would not be corrected in his sin, and because God had given him the honor to bear in his lifetime the figure of Jesus Christ, and notwithstanding, he had abused the same privilege and given himself over to all kinds of ungodliness, 
then you shall be buried with the burial of an ass, says the prophet. Hereby we are warned to have very great regard of all the corrections that God sends us, even of the very least, that we may always be stirred up to fear. For why do we pass over so many chastisements of God without profiting from them? It is because we shut our eyes willfully, and unless we are compelled by sheer force and necessity, we are content to think that it is not God who chastises us, and, as we shall see hereafter, we fall to such stupidity that we attribute everything to chance. Let us therefore be admonished to mark all the corrections God sends us, both upon ourselves and upon our neighbors, that we may receive a warning by them. It seems to be only a small matter not to be buried. Indeed, but God wants us to have it noted, and to be understood that it is His hand that is in it, and that He shows Himself a judge against such as have offended Him. Seeing that God will have His judgments known in such small matters, let us be advised to have more wit and discretion. And as often as God gives us, as we say, a mere flick of the finger, let us be moved to think on Him, and not tarry until He draws His sword or bends His bow to hit us with a mortal wound. But let us by all means humble ourselves under His hand. Moreover, we have here a testimony of the life everlasting. It is true that this point was not so plainly declared in the law, as it is in the gospel. Neither the doctrine that we shall rise again to the heavenly glory, nor that we shall live with God after our death. But yet for all that, the ancient fathers did not live the life of beasts, nor did God leave them in such ignorance that their faith was closed up to this present world and to this transitory life. Here we have record that when we have finished the course of this life, there is yet a greater judgment prepared for all men. And if God forbears with us here, so that we escape all the curses mentioned in the law even to the end, yet we must come to a greater reckoning. For it would be needless for God to speak of depriving men of their burial if, as I said even now, he had no further meaning in it. Therefore, let us so use this doctrine that we may be provoked to have an eye to the life that is yet hidden from us, for which we look by faith. And let us not think it will greatly avail us when God does not punish us in this world. For it is far better for us to linger here below and be continually in misery than to enjoy our ease and delights if in the meanwhile God is but tarrying with us in order eventually to thunder upon us when he has taken us out of this world. Thus you see what this text of Moses serves for us where he says that the birds and the beasts shall eat our carcasses, and that no man shall drive them away. Now, if God gives such tokens of his wrath to our bodies, which have no motive in themselves, what will become of our souls, in which is the very seat of evil and the kingdom of Satan? For our hands, our feet, our eyes, and our ears do not offend of their own proper motion, but by the direction and provocation of our wicked thoughts and affections. And where do all those things lie, and whence do they proceed, but from our souls? Seeing then that the bodies, which were but instruments, do feel the wrath of God, and do answer to the same, as we see, let us not suppose that the souls will escape. Let us therefore always look higher than this transitory life, in order to wake ourselves up, and let us walk in such obedience that, first, after we have fought against sin and Satan, 
and have been exercised in patience and in various afflictions in this world, having done our endeavor to serve God with all diligence, our souls may be taken up to rest, and that, second, our Lord in like manner may show the same favor to our dead bodies. Notwithstanding, this favor and blessing of having their bodies buried does not always happen to the faithful, and it falls out that many of the wicked are very honorably buried, even though it is nothing to them, and their state is not improved in the least thereby. We see what is said in Psalm 79.3 concerning those that have faithfully served God, namely that their bodies were laid out as a prey to the fowls and the beasts, and yet they were the children of God. And although this is a testimony of God's wrath upon the wicked, yet it may oftentimes come to pass that our Lord will use the same manner of chastisements upon his own people, and yet it shall not harm them. It is true that we must always humble ourselves when such a thing happens, and we must understand that such things are as it were marks of Adam's sin, and of the corruption that is in us, and also of the offenses we have committed. And yet, when he permits the faithful to be deprived of burial, our Lord turns this evil to good. We see what is said of the rich man and of Lazarus in Luke 16.22. It is said that the rich man died and was buried. Behold how the world's pomp is bestowed on the reprobate. It seems that his soul should have been received into paradise when his body was sumptuously carried and treated with great ceremonies. And what of Lazarus? He died too. But what mention is there of his burial? None at all. By this our Lord Jesus intends us to understand, for it is he who speaks, that we must not rely altogether upon visible things. But yet this threat, however the case stands, is not in vain. What are we to understand then? Let us gather generally, as we have said, that burial serves to lead us to the hope of the heavenly life and of the resurrection we must hope for. So much concerning that point. When we bury the dead, let it serve always to provoke and to stir us to understand that we are not created to live in this world only, but that there is another better life prepared for us. And again, when we see that our Lord deprives anyone of burial, let us understand that thereby he shows his wrath. Nevertheless, it is better sometimes for a man to be devoured of beasts and birds, and to be chastised by God after that sort in his body for the sparing of his soul, and to have a temporal condemnation, than to perish for evermore. It is better sometimes for a wicked man to be hanged than to die in his bed. For how many do we see who gnash their teeth against God, when He has patiently tarried for them, and given them so many plain and apparent tokens of His wrath for their behavior, and yet nevertheless they made a mock at Him, and still continue obstinate in the rebellion? When a wretched evildoer is condemned by men, he is ashamed of it, and cast down in himself, and acknowledges and bewails his sins. This condemnation, then, that he bears in his body, even though it is an execution of what is here spoken of by Moses, does serve to his salvation. And therefore, let us keep these things in mind. Moreover, when the faithful, even the very martyrs, are burned, and their bodies are reduced to ashes, so that they do not have what should be common to all mankind, let us understand that God converts the same to their welfare and their glory is thereby doubled. How do we know this? 
For it is certain that it is a threat of God, as are also all diseases. But when our Lord says so, he means that these are the ordinary means he uses to correct our sins. Nevertheless, he does chastise those who have not offended him, and whom he does not intend to pursue with rigor, and that in such manner and with his own hand. This is in sum what we have to bear in mind concerning this text. Disease. Now let us come to what Moses says next, that God shall strike the despisers of his law with many diseases, verse 27. He has spoken earlier, in verse 22, of fevers and of inflammations and of the yellow jaundice as well as of others. Now he speaks of the itch and canker and of other worms and scabs. Mention is also made of hemorrhoids, as some understand it. All these things are the weapons of God to punish the offenders of his law. In brief, they are his men of war to fight against us when he sees that we take courage against him. And indeed, when we favor our own lusts and violate his righteousness, raking the order he has established among us, and when he sees our lusts to be so inordinate as to be thieves and robbers, then he arms his people and substitutes, which are the diseases that are here spoken of, and other sorts as well. Let us therefore learn that whatever diseases we suffer in our bodies, they are all messages from God to make us feel his wrath because we have offended him. The extraordinary diseases are especially so, however, as when God sends upon us such sicknesses as are not common among men, and of which the cures are unknown or very difficult to discover. By these God means to make us feel his anger towards us doubly, and to show us that we have provoked him too much. But we think little of this. Concerning the ordinary diseases, their very commonness makes us think that they do not proceed from God. We say, there is a man who has a fever, there is another who has a bad problem with ketter, or a head cold, or some other such disease. We tend to be hardened in these things. How? by custom. And must God, therefore, let go the possession of his right? If he continues to show himself a judge towards us, in chastising us, is that any reason why we should forget him and have no regard of his hand? All the same, such is our bullheadedness. I would to God that the examples of such were not as notorious as they are. But let every man look to himself and see if the ordinariness of sicknesses does not cause us to turn our backs upon God, and to have less regards of his judgments and of our own sins, so that none of us finds any faults with himself. So much concerning the common and usual sicknesses. And as for the extraordinary diseases, we see how men are hardened by them as well. I pray you, have we not seen that God within these fifty years has brought up new diseases against harlotry? Whence comes syphilis and all these other filthy diseases, which cannot be counted at this time? Where do these come from except from God, who utters such vengeance as formerly was never seen? The world wondered at it, and for a time men were greatly afraid of it. But yet in all this they have had no consideration for the hand of God. And at this day it has become so ordinary a matter that the despisers of God... I mean the lecherous sort and the whoremongers who give themselves to all sorts of lewdness, do but wring their groins at it. Though God smites them with such a leprosy, 
for it is a kind of leprosy indeed, so that they are eaten up with fretting and with other filthiness. Yet they do not cease following their practices and only mock at the illness. Truly it is a strange thing that such a punishment of God should be scoffed at. How they jest about their bodiness, at the same time they are being punished by God. It is amazing. They jest and scoff at it, as if it were in spite of God. And while he calls them to humble themselves in sackcloth and ashes, they raz at him with their tongues, and are so far from being ashamed of their deeds that, even as it were in spite, they make a sport of their own filthiness and miseries. We see then how perverse men can be, seeing that they can make no better profit in God's school. I don't mean in the school of his teaching, where he speaks to them, but in the school of his smiting them with heavy strokes, and raising up wars and troubles, which ought to make men besides themselves with fear. All the same, Moses did not write this in vain. Let us therefore be the better advised, and when God sends us any strange diseases, let us understand that our sins are multiplied, and that God must on that account be more moved than he was before. For this reason, let it bring us to repentance, and let us not double our iniquities, for in the end we shall find out from experience what we have seen even now, namely that such evil will stick with us, even in our marrow and bones, until we are utterly consumed. Besides this, God has another means to punish us, and when he perceives that the usual methods do not prevail, he has other rods laid up in his storehouse, as it is said in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32:34. Indeed, we shall see what it means to walk recklessly against him, namely that in the end he will overtake those perverse and crooked persons who pretend to be innocent fools and do nothing but scoff and shake their heads when he has punished them one way or another. Let us not therefore tarry until God must use extreme measures toward us, but being warned beforehand by what is here mentioned, let us look to it and consider that however many diseases he sends us, they are so many witnesses he sends to prove that we have sinned against him, that we might think on it and turn to him with all lowliness. Forsaken of God I said earlier that the very worst of all is what Moses adds here at the end, that God shall smite us with all astonishment, so that we will be groping blindly at full midday, as do the blind in their darkness, and that our hearts shall be bewildered. Verses 28-29 Hitherto we have seen that God shows a singular favor towards men, in afflicting them in their bodies, while their minds remain at quiet, that they may be patient. Thus they feel their sins and bewail them, and cease not to call upon him who chastises them. And in truth it is sometimes seen that the grace of God is much more manifested towards such people than if they had no such great afflictions. For example, if God spares a man, and he comes to serve God, we see that God blesses him. When we see a sound and holy life in one, we say, Here is a man who serves God and God also shows himself gracious towards him. Again, we see another that is visited with great diseases, so that every man has pity and compassion on him. He pines continually and has vehement pains. He is vexed with various maladies, and the very remedies that are given him prove so grievous that nothing can be done. 
yet notwithstanding, this man does not cease to hold himself in quiet, confessing his sins and craving pardon from God. In such a man, we see such patience as moves us to glorify God, and the man himself continues in prayers and supplications. When a man is thus mortified, and God holds his heart in awe, so that he continues in patience under his hand, then we perceive a great grace of God in the midst of these chastisements. But when we are without reason in our sickness, and act madly and in bedlam, and stand chewing on the bridle without knowing which way to turn, all the while never making any attempt to flee to God or relief, then we are in the full measure of all misery. Therefore, it is with good reason that Moses, having spoken of the sicknesses and griefs that God sends upon men's bodies, and also of extraordinary chastisements that constrain men, in spite of their pride, to feel their sins, adds here that God shall strike with blindness, and he shall so strike that our minds shall be amazed. We will grope at noonday as in the dark, we will have no more sense of feeling in our hearts, and we will be altogether blockish. Here we are warned again that the chastisement that happens to us in our minds shall be more dreadful to us than anything we can endure in our bodies. It is true that our nature draws us clean contrary, for we are so tender and nice to our bodies, that as soon as we feel any grief, by and by we cry out and lose our patience, and therein we see a part of our brutishness. For if we had even a drop of firm understanding, we would be a hundred times more afraid of the chastisements that God threatens to our souls than of all the evil we can endure in our bodies. In what case is a man, when he is forsaken by God, so that he seeks him no longer, but endeavors by any means to hide himself from his presence? Surely, when we come to that point, if we could pluck God out of his seat, we would gladly do it. He that seeks such hiding holes to evade coming to God is doing whatever he can to rob him of his majesty, for he is loath to come before such judge. And truly, although a man suffers no further harm than his blockishness, so that he does not feel his own misery, is it not a token that God has already given him over to a reprobate mind? Yes, for there is not a more evident sign of reprobation than to be without remorse or scruple of conscience. Moreover, when a man is frightened and out of his wits, so that he does not know which way to turn, and has no more taste or feeling of God, and has no skill to lament for his sins or to ask forgiveness of them and to repent of them, but gnashes his teeth and bites the bridle like a mule, is such not a dreadful thing? When we behold such mirrors, our hairs stand upright on our heads, and even nature forces us to it. And yet, for all that, if we do not think upon it, that we may stand in awe and walk in fear and humility, is it not a tempting of God? Let us therefore learn not to harden ourselves in such a way that God is forced to fall to this rigor, wherewith he here threatens us, namely that he shall make us grope as the blind in the dark, and that we shall have neither understanding nor discretion, so that we fall into such a fearful state that we do not know whether we are living creatures or not, nor will we perceive whether or not there is a God that will receive us to mercy, and whether or not we will prevail in calling upon his name. Let us not tarry till such evil comes upon us, for it is a deep pit from which very few can get out. Indeed, God will sometimes bring his people to that point, 
so that they do not know where they are, and are so greatly afraid, and so troubled with it all, that they become dull and blockish. This is well seen. But he lifts them up again after he has brought them low. Since, however, this example is very rare, let us not tempt our God. But when he afflicts us on our bodies, let us understand that he spares us greatly, and that he mitigates the rigor of his wrath, and let us be no longer as impatient as we have been prone to be. Although the grief be hard and bitter to us, let us confess, and yet God has not touched me in my soul. Let this always come to our remembrance, so that we, acknowledging the goodness of our God, in that he forbears us, may return to him, and not doubt, but that he is ready to take pity upon us when we seek him unfeignedly. Let that serve for one point that we have to remember in this lesson, where mention is made of the said blockishness. Now Moses says expressly that the transgressors of God's law shall grope at noonday. It is as if he should say, notwithstanding that God gives them many occasions to rejoice, yet they shall be frightened in such a way that they shall not take hold of any grace, but be as blind wretches. Seeing it is so, let us mark further that although God mitigates our griefs and comforts us, Yet that serves no profit if he does not give us the wisdom to understand that we are not able to enjoy the good that God offers to us when we are destitute of his Holy Spirit. And this is one execution of the threat here uttered. It is true that we should always return to this point, that our God does not desire the utter confusion of sinners, but that since such miseries do happen oftentimes, we should not tarry till they light upon our heads, but rather seek the remedy to the end that God not have occasion to withdraw himself from us. But whatever the case may be, let us first of all mark that God directs his teaching to such as have been trained in his word, as we have already said. It is certain that he is judge of the world, yet we deserve to be well chastised after a more severe fashion when we have been taught by his mouth and have rejected his will and are so far corrupted that we make but a jest of his word and that whereas he sought to retain us as his people, we have despised him. It is very proper, therefore, that we should be grievously punished, and therefore let us think that since God does us the favor of letting us have the pure doctrine of the Holy Scripture, the same serves to remove from us all excuses, and also to quicken us up to walk so much the more in fear. But with all this, let us mark further that God not only uses threats towards us, but also daily exhorts and allures us to himself to reconcile us to him, showing that on his part he is ready to come to reconciliation if we condemn our sins and return to his mercy. What else is the gospel that we hear every day except a message of reconciliation, as St. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5.18? Seeing then that God sends us a herald to declare peace unto us and to show that he is ready to do away all our offenses, Let us take heed that we use this time of our salvation to receive the grace that is offered to us in due season, as the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 49, 8, and as St. Paul says, using the same testimony in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Again, when we have been overly hard, and God has patiently waited for us, and we still continue in our sins, let us not think that he in the end has either given over or forgotten his office we must yield an account of such unthankfulness. When we forsake the salvation to which he has called us and despise him out of measure, 
Such willful stubbornness must of necessity come to reckoning. Then let us stand in fear, and as often as we hear the words of the grace of God that is offered to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, let our hearts be inclined to receive it, and let us give way to God to come in. And when we go to Him, let it be done with bewailing of our sins, and with admission of our guilt, not only in word of mouth, but also with such grief of heart as may prove that the evil displeases us. And when we thus come to dislike ourselves, let us not abide until our Lord puts into execution the threats he sets forth here, but let us turn them to our use. And when we hear the promises of the gospel, let us remember the threats also, that we may be so much the more provoked, and every man may make haste to receive the good that is offered to us to enjoy and to possess unless the fault be in ourselves. Prayer Now let us cast ourselves down before the majesty of our good God, with acknowledgment of our sins, beseeching Him to make us to feel them yet better, until we are utterly beaten down in ourselves, and seek for the remedy to which He calls us, namely, that being guided by His Holy Spirit, we may increase and profit more and more in all holiness and righteousness, and that we may endeavor so to glorify Him in all our whole life, that in the end we may attain to that same everlasting glory into which He calls us. And so let us all say, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, etc.